Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Well, what is up everyone? Thank you very much for tuning into this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast coming at you from episode 29, the overly assertive edition. My name is Dion Gribben. And we do have a couple of things to explore. So we will chat about how the markets went, kind of our usual spiel. And we will also focus in on a little bit of economic data that came out during the week. But on an exciting note, we actually have some listener questions, which is, so that's right. Yes, we do. We have some listener questions. And by some, I mean two for the show. So I'm very excited. And if you are not aware, maybe you are, maybe you are a newer listener to the podcast you can actually submit listener questions. You can do that to marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. But let us not waste any more time and jump straight into the week that was. Well, the ASX 200, it, I mean, yes, it, it was up. It was up. It was up 0.1%. Not really deserving of our Market Pulse podcast cheer there. The US, not as pretty, although. Not, it was pretty pretty flat there too, but it was down 0.6%. That was the S&P 500. The NASDAQ was basically the same. It was down 0.6% as well. It, no, no, it kind of felt like it was going to be another ne- negative week in Australia, but we, we kind of just were able to edge out a green finish overall for the week. And I don't know, it was kind of a bit of a boring week, I thought. But I mean, for most parts, it was the financial sector that weighed... I guess the overall market down, and I'm, I actually don't, I'm not really talking so much about the big four. It was actually AMP that had the really bad week. They were down around nine percent for the week, and it was kind of miners like resource stocks that held up the index for the week in Australia. So BHP up a couple percent. You had gold miners up a fair bit for the week as well, and there was a couple, I guess, individual things going on that did take my interest. I shouldn't say it was all a boring week, but. I feel like it was mostly a boring week. I don't know. But I'm going to start with the start with Kogan. We talked about them before on the podcast. Probably so probably one of the more interesting things I saw on the market this week came out on the 16th. So it was from Kogan, released a, a business update to the Australian Stock Exchange specific to August as well. They quoted that in this business update, active customers grew to almost 2.5 million here, they say as at 31 of August 2020, which is an incremental 152,000 in the month of August 2020. And it was actually the largest monthly increase in the history of the business. So pretty good news there for Kogan, pretty good news for shareholders. So shares in Kogan were up about 10% for the week. Pretty much most of that gain was sort of after that announcement went live and kind of showing that they're not exactly slowing down. It wasn't just a one-off thing for them towards the start of the year. Kogan, of course, being one of the big beneficiaries to the kind of work from home environment in 2020, so it seems. Another one was Seek. So Seek was in the news, listed here in the ASX, or started here in Australia. So you would know them as the online job classifieds and they're like a recruiting website. So Seek actually operate in more countries than just Australia. It's not just here domestically. And they also have investments in sort of other countries around the world 
that they don't they might not necessarily own all of it, but they have different stakes in things. And one of them was what was causing all the noise this week, and that is a Chinese-based employment website called Zaopin. Now, this is something that Seek has a stake. Well, it's kind of like a part ownership in, I guess, so they have an investment stake in it. And the news kind of came, there was, and they had to, well, they had to do a release to the market on the 16th to kind of address the fact that this article came out, well, it came out in the US by a tech publication called The Information. And it wrote that Alibaba, which is the giant Chinese e-commerce firm, was actually looking to inject some money into Xiaoping. This report was, of course, picked up by all the sort of bigger parties like Bloomberg over here in Australia, like the AFR, and sort of spread around. And I mean, at one point, Seek shares were up almost 10% for the week, but they didn't they didn't close the week like that. They closed the week sort of being up almost about 5%. But And so you might be thinking, why do Seek shares surge on news that a Chinese e-commerce firm, Alibaba, is investing in a company that is not Seek. It's investing in a company that, yes, Seek has an investment in itself, but not Seek. Well, the, I mean, if it's true, if it turns out to be true, it could be very good news for Seek shareholders. I mean, it could, it's potential to increase the value of their own stake in this uh, Chinese company, Zaopin. And perhaps that sort of big, because, you know, Alibaba is such a big company, you know, perhaps that cash injection could drive a lot more growth and acquisition for Zaopin. So, I mean, it's kind of all rumors and maybes right now. So Seek themselves, they when they address the market, they basically said as much saying nothing's concrete. And this is, this is definitely paraphrasing. I'm not quoting them here, but they basically said that Zaopin are discussing stuff with a bunch of potential new investors and nothing at all has been decided. There's nothing really to announce. And basically... The crux of it was hold your horses. So for the moment, I guess from a shareholder point of view, it's wait and see, but there was definitely a bit of buying on the rumor going on in Seek shares during the week. And there was some actual economic data we're touching on around the labor force this week, and this pertained to the ABS releasing more data on unemployment and hours work. And the, the, the big sort of headline focus was on the unemployment rate. It dropped to 6.8% in the month of August. This coming down from a high of about 7.5% prior to this. And by all accounts, that data actually shocked a few pundits out on the market. I believe, I'm pretty sure the Bloomberg consensus was for the unemployment rate to actually slightly increase to about six, sorry, 7.7% and not actually drop like it did. But as always with labor data, I mean, it's kind of worth picking at the first layer to see some of the finer details underneath and there are a couple interesting takeaways or things worth updating on kind of the normal stuff that I like to update on but probably the first and probably the most interesting thing was where that employment came from so what caused the unemployment rate to drop so where all the employed persons came from and I'm just referring to some reporting from Bloomberg here by Michael Heath so it was self-employed workers that drove the monthly jobs increase. Part-time jobs returned at twice the pace of full-time and the ubiquitous food delivery services with its riders pedaling the streets of Australia cities are expected to be responsible for much of this. So what does that mean? Well, it's um, it's kind of pegged to the gig economy. So it's a, it's pegged to the Uber Eats and the Ubers and the, and the DoorDashes and all that kind of stuff. So the 
those kind of jobs and that's kind of interesting I think and a couple other things worth pointing out is the participation rate so that's now at 64.8% which is still down from where it was around the Christmas period and sort of January period at the start of this year which was about 66% and just as a quick refresher the participation rate is the percentage of Australians who are currently working or at least actively working or sorry or at least actively looking for work I should say out of and that's based out of the entire working age population, not the whole population, the working age population. And so that 64.8% participation rate, it hasn't moved too much. And so that kind of means that since COVID, we've actually lost a couple percentage points of people who are now out of the workforce. So they don't have a job, but they're also not looking for a job. So they've fallen out there, which I think is important. Another one is underutilization rate. So that's a combination of unemployed and underemployed. Now, this did come back a bit in this latest data release, so back about 0.7 percentage points to 18%, but it's kind of important to still highlight that it is still 4.5% higher than where it was in March, so that part's also a little bit concerning. But I thought the, I thought the, whole, the fact that a lot of the, the drive came from the gig economy was interesting because they have very different jobs to, you know, I'm trying to, I don't want to say normal jobs because you know, what is a normal job these days, but well, let's say normal job, but they are very different jobs. You know, They are not something that's maybe as concrete and as safe and secure as, as um, many of the jobs that, that perhaps my listeners have or perhaps we have had in the past. So, and so that I think is, is, is just worth considering there. But we're going to jump into listener questions this week. And we have two, like I said, at the top of the show, which is, which is very exciting. Actually, actually, one of these actually came in right before I recorded the last episode last weekend. And I was going to do it. I decided to actually push it forward because that last episode went for quite a while, all things considered, compared to my other ones. And that was kind of because of the explanation around, well, at least I hope it was a decent explanation around option, options trading. And I hope I didn't lose any subscribers off the back of that. And actually, I hope some of you who managed to listen to that episode check out that video I recommended because it does do a good sort of further explainer on what I laid out. But let's not waste any time. We'll jump into questions. The first one comes from Amy on the Gold Coast. Is the market pricing in a Joe Biden presidency or Donald Trump re-election? Also, are are there consequences for investors for either scenario? And does it actually matter for our market in Australia? Thank you. That's a good question. I might start with, I always I always go to history but first, but I might start with what, what the market impact was when Trump got in. And the so the election was November 2016. And from, from about sort of Christmas in 2015 up until the election, which was on November 8th in 2016, the market, and when I say the market, sorry, just to clarify, I'm talking about the S&P 500 in the US, it had basically done nothing. And as in, it was relatively flat across that whole entire year period leading up to the election or the 12 months leading up to that election. And then, and then whilst there was an early, I guess, jitter, so to speak, in the markets, because I think the futures opened up at the time and they were down like 4 or 5%. But basically since Trump's been in, the, to cut a long story short, the market's just been on a tear. And a lot of that comes back to the corporate tax cuts. So that was definitely a, a huge sugar hit to some of those big companies 
out there. And there's talk that Biden may roll back corporate tax cuts that were introduced under Trump. And even if it might not be fully rolled back, but it might be changed or at least slightly rolled back, who knows? Another point worth considering is, so Democrats control the House right now, but it is, and it's slightly skewed in favour of them also winning the Senate in the election. So if they did control both the House and the Senate, they would, at least for a few years, have control over kind of any legislation that they're pushing through. And so something like a if there was a rollback on corporate tax cuts or a partial rollback, whatever you want to say, it, that's going to be a little bit more possible and easier to do when, when your party controls uh, both the House and the Senate. But I kind of want to be clear that I don't think any of that's a given. I was just looking at 538's website and, and yes, Democrats are slightly favoured to win the Senate and that's slightly. So nothing is set in stone. It's, 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 it's still a very close. But So that's potentially maybe a concern for markets. I think that, well, at least that's one of the bigger concern. Actually, there was something recently I read about this. And so Goldman Sachs apparently did an analysis on the Biden tax plan and its, its implication on S&P 500 companies. And Goldman Sachs suggested that if it was enacted, his corporate tax increase would cut the earnings per share of S&P 500 companies about 12%. And so that would sort of be a little bit of a headwind there for stocks. So, and I guess I guess the thing with Trump is he is broadly seen as good for the market. I mean, he certainly has been overall for the case. That there, there is again the jitters, there's the sort of unknowns and the occasional volatility that can spook investors when you have Trump at the helm because, uh, say, things like trade war rhetoric with China. That can sometimes cause, but then again, sometimes the market just shrugs it off. But it's an interesting one. But good question. I will say this: although the polls show a Biden lead at the moment, I think we're in for a very close one. I think it's it's gonna it's it's all about the electoral college. It's all coming down to specific states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Florida. Florida is always a big one. So although Biden has a lead in the average of national polls and has for quite some time that in the last few weeks, especially you've seen that lead actually narrow down. I think we're talking about like a six percentage point lead at the moment, but I I don't know, but I feel like I'm rambling my ultimate answer to your question. And this might come across a little bit cynical, but I, I, I I don't think it matters that much to be honest. So, and that's not saying that there's zero difference between the nominees, but I'm not convinced that either is quote unquote bad for the markets or for business. You know, Trump is Trump. We've seen four years of it already. I don't know if it'd be much different in the for another four years. Biden and Kamala Harris are, are very establishment-friendly candidates, and I dare say Wall Street and sort of big business would be more than fine with them in in charge as well. So I don't think it's going to stir up much at all. But who knows? I'm not. I'm not an expert. <laughs> I did find some sort of when I was. Thinking about this question, I actually came across some interesting historical data. I always like historical data, but it was this one was around elections and markets, and this kind of doesn't really help your question. It's it's interesting, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. So I took this from some of this stuff from a USA Today article, and it was titled "Can the Stock Market Predict Whether Joe Biden Will Be the Next President or Donald Trump Wins a Second Term?" And so there's a couple interesting sort of facts here. So the first the first one, I guess worth putting up is the S&P 500 
has risen in every election year when presidents have been up for re-election and there was only an exception for two of Franklin Roosevelt's re-election bids. So the SP 500 has risen in every year when presidents have been up for re-election. And in the in 20 of the last 23 elections, so the vast majority, the incumbent party has been re-elected when the S&P 500 was positive in the three months before the election. So the incumbent party here being the Republicans being Trump. But maybe one that doesn't actually bode well for Trump's is since 1952, incumbents have lost every time the market dropped 20% or a recession hit during the election year, which had both of those have happened this year, <laughs> okay? And the in terms of parties in control and what that means for the market, so the S&P 500 has performed best when Congress has been split. So before when I was giving the example of the Democrats won both the House and the Senate, that's not a split. So a split would be, you know, Republicans control one, Democrats control the other. But the data seems to show that a Republican-controlled Congress, the S&P 500 is is just on average performs about 13.4% in terms of annual returns, Democrat controlled 10.7, but a split is 17.2%. So it seems like it's better when there's a split. Maybe that's because nothing gets done. <laughs> it sort of certainly seems like it. So maybe it's like a toe-the-line status quo is is good for business there. But I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Hopefully, hopefully that uh, gives you something to think about. I wouldn't be too... I, I was going to say I wouldn't be too worried about it, but I'm saying that from a personal point of view because I don't I don't have any investments nor do I care too much. If I was going to invest in, say, Apple in the US t- um, today, then which I don't have investment in Apple, but if I was, and I, I have ETF of the NASDAQ, whether Biden wins or Trump wins in November, I'm not really, I'm not really taking that into consideration, to be honest with you. And the second question comes from Jared in Brisbane. So with banks only allowed to pay a 50% dividend, can they use the other part of their profit to do buybacks or create value for shareholders in other ways or do they just hold on to it? Good question. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the podcast and and writing in there, Jared. And for clarity, I guess for listeners, the 50% just reference there refers to the APRA decision APRA being the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. Yes, it is a mouthful, but their decision to basically tell banks that, this is a couple of months ago, yes, you can pay dividends to shareholders, but you do have to cap it at 50% of the profits. That was quite a lot different to just a couple of months prior to that where APRA, the, so the, the narrative from APRA was much more along the lines of do not pay a dividend at all. So they kind of changed their tune there. But and it was kind of really only a few months back that when like banks like ANZ and Westpac, they actually suspended their half-year dividend. CBA didn't, but that is a little different because they kind of just, because of the way they time their half-year versus those other banks, they kind of got it in just before sort of pre-COVID time, more around the February mark from memory. NAB did actually pay a half-year dividend, but it was uh, decreased and they also did a cap raise to help with that now cba again most recently they did pay or they announced a full financial year dividend it was significantly different to last year's full financial year but they did or they are planning to pay one i believe that that lands in september i guess in terms of what they can do for shareholders 
is in these banks, if they can do something other than dividends, that's good for shareholders. Uh, I sort of don't know in terms of like a legal, whether, they, whether they're allowed to. I think the, the, the issue with, say, when you invest in a bank is because of the, the role banks have in society, they are, yes, yes, we have the Royal Commission, but they are very heavily regulated and, and sometimes those regulators do sort of make the direction of where they have to go. And so in this case, obviously, APRA putting their foot down on how much of a dividend they can pay and the sort of banks following suit there. So, yeah, I, one one thing I was looking at when I got this question was that APRA announcement, which kind of came in, I think it was right at the end of July, almost August, and they said, so, yeah, whilst they've said that banks and insurers don't need to sort of defer dividends completely like what was sort of going on towards more March, April, you know, providing they sort of moderate those dividends, they sort of, they're stressing here that they want the banks to prioritize supporting their customers and the economy. And what I mean by supporting their customers, that's with, you know, those policies that the banks have put in such as loan repayment deferrals, you know, putting provisions in place for potential increase in bad loans so I think that's where sort of APRA is t- kind of telling the banks to put the other part of that money. So if only 50% is going to, to shareholders through dividends, it's not a, it's not that then they can use the 50% that were at the remainder to just do share buybacks and things like that to help investors. So it doesn't look like it or I haven't seen anything that that would suggest that they can or they are doing that, but but a good question. But I think, yeah, the, the things, it'd be, it'd be kind of risky for a bank to, and not not just for their business, but the banks are they're tra- they're treading pretty lightly post royal commission. So I think in in any ways that some of the things that they're doing, such as those loan repayment deferrals, are to sort of to help rebuild that sort of goodwill with the Australian public after that all went all happened. And so yeah, I don't think they're going to be doing anything that's going to try and damage that. But thank you for the question. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much, very very much for tuning in to the Market Pulse podcast. Once again, this was episode 29. We're almost at 30. Very exciting. If you do have questions just like Jared and Amy did, you can shoot them through, like I said at the top of the show, marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. My name is Dion Grubin and thank you very much for tuning in as always. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your week. Cheers. Cheers.